thing, you know, we're in the business of going fast and so are the teams and, um, you know, they, they push it to the absolute limits and sometimes over it and that, that's what happens. And the full credit to Shane, you know, he just, just merged into the, into the family as if he'd been there all along. I was embarrassed for that race to restart in Tasmania. Dumb shit like that, that just isn't acceptable. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. It's Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel looking back on the Perth Supercars debut on the Barbagallo track under lights. Uh, an interesting weekend, certainly a dominant weekend yet again by DJR Team Penske and Scotty McLaughlin. Did you uh, watch much, all, some, a little bit? <laughs> yes, I Craig. saw most of it, and most of it was a domination by DJR Team Penske. You had to uh, think that Fabian was uh, uh, brilliant on Saturday night. Got the jump and then never headed. And even the team tried to give Scotty a chance to get past him by doing a two-tyre stop, and that wasn't good enough to catch uh, the flying Fabian Coulthard on, on, sa- on Friday. But then on Saturday, the grid was jumbled slightly, um, although remarkably, remarkably... Uh, Scott McLaughlin just set his time and then stayed in the garage and said, and then stayed in the garage and said, yeah. "Catch me if he can." And he, uh, no one could catch him. But Jamie Wincup did put in quite a fight indeed. But once again, DJ Team Penske, the class of the field. Yeah, and uh, what a break! I think both qualifying sessions. I think it was two tenths that uh, Jamie, uh, rather Scott, had on uh, Fabian on the Friday. And then on the Saturday night, um, he had, I think, 14. So clearly, Scotty has got speed out of that Mustang that uh, has not been curtailed by the uh, recent COG and uh, aero uh, adjustments and parity uh, changes. But um, overall, um, it was interesting to watch. I I felt just having my first good look at um, some uh, night racing and supercars that they slipped back into the old ways of showing the cars too small. Now, they were going for the drama of the overhead shots with a drone camera, but um, I just felt that uh, they looked like slot cars on a track a little bit, Craig, if you uh, understand what I'm trying to say. Not the brutal cars as we know them and as shown in supercars. Yeah, I thought that the... I thought that... It, it, whilst I think the Perth circuit is exactly right for a night race in the much of the, in as much as the layout, I thought perhaps maybe it was overlit to some degrees because you didn't have as spectacular um, light shows coming off the cars because perhaps it was a bit brighter. Now I understand the drivers want as much light as possible, but uh, yeah, I I don't know. It was quite different to it was quite different to Sydney Motorsport Park. Um, I, I thought the introductions didn't work. I thought my feeling was the introductions the year before um, was a much better spectacle. But of course, no one really sits on the main straight at Barbagallo because they put that bridge uh, across the track, and then of course you've got the pit building blocking the view from the other side. So they had a, a completely different set of things to contend with. But I was watching uh, the race with some, you know, casual observers. And they said the introduction, in their opinion, on Saturday night was way too long, so it didn't it didn't grab them or inspire them. So, uh, taking my own personal views out of it and getting a casual observer's point of view was quite interesting. And 
Uh, the other thing that got me was uh, down in uh, Cobb Corner, it seemed like they'd lit the inside of the track, but the cameras were on the outside of the track, so you were just watching the uh, outside of the cars in shadow. Overall, I felt that um, it was certainly a worthwhile exercise, but I understand the uh, the ratings have not been uh, as good as you'd hope. I understand, Craig, that ratings didn't really pan out as well as they would have hoped. I was fascinated when I saw the ratings because it didn't feature in the top ten on free-to-air, and that was quite surprising to me on Saturday night. Um, it was the fifth highest rating show on subscriber TV, 186,000 or something like that, but only about 46,000 watched it on Channel 10. So it, it is very interesting to know what impact um, have all the supercar fans gone over to subscription and they're not making new ones because of the infrequency of uh, free-to-air broadcasts or, you know, it, I, I don't have an answer for it. Supercars are obviously going to be looking for it, but I, I was very surprised when I looked down the demographics page. I went down, you know, just about everything on the overnight scores and couldn't find it in there. Crowd-wise, I understand it was felt it was a good crowd um, on the Friday and Saturday nights. Most of the talk coming out of the track was that the crowd was up on previous years. So that's a bonus, and obviously a night race is a, is a spectacle, and it's a spectacle for the crowd as much as for the television audience. So great to see that the crowd got out there, understanding that there was a game at Optus Stadium uh, with the West Coast Eagles on at the same time on Saturday night. So, you know, you're pulling in 60,000... Uh, sorry, no, that's not many. It was about 45,000, I think, at Optus Stadium, and it looked packed. Yeah. Um, and then to say, so to get a solid crowd out at Barbagello, which is a little bit out of town, is uh, good news. Um, interesting to see uh, Tickford, uh, while they didn't replicate the uh, success of uh, DJR Penske's uh, Mustangs, um, they they had uh, a number of podiums. Um, in fact, Cam Waters uh, back on the podium on uh, Saturday night. Mostert would have probably been there as well, other than the fact he had some sort of an engine failure. But uh, it all round the the, the Mustangs uh, brought home uh, at least a, a good number of them were in the top ten over the uh, two races. Yes, um, Jamie Winkler had a bounce uh, back as well. Was, yeah, yeah, his best uh, weekend for the year following a pretty disastrous Phillip Island and Tasmania. So uh, while he's some 400 points off the uh, championship lead of McLaughlin, um, he uh, he can take some solace from the fact that they have made improvements. Uh, Shane uh, was thereabouts, but he certainly wasn't in a top three form. Um, it was usually running around in the fourth and fifth sort of places. But overall, the uh, racing was pretty tight. Um, there was some wonderful passing done by Cam Waters in particular, and he made genuine speed and, and was showing great driving skill, uh, particularly on the Saturday night when he uh, got up to third place. He's um, an aggressive young lad, as you should... like to point out on a number of occasions. Yeah, but, the, you know, the right degree. He's, he's had come unstuck a couple of times and uh, had that misfortune with he and uh, uh, Scotty at the Grand Prix when they zigged and zagged warming tyres. Um, but overall, I think that uh, Cam is really showing some uh, some great driving skills and uh, certainly Tickford are showing the sort of bounce back you expect from them after a pretty abysmal uh, 2018. I've got a quote for you, Tony. Here's a quote. To be honest, the form of DJR Team Penske makes it really hard to tell much. 
they're doing a fantastic job. But losing the rear wing gurney is a pretty big gain for the Mustangs, given that they didn't appear to need full wing anyway. One of the dramas for the Mustangs seems to be its drag. Reducing the gurney helps it a lot at almost every track. Yes, well, that is an interesting comment. Um, I understand we were trying to get hold of Ryan's story and uh, Tim Edwards from DJ uh, from uh, Tickford's, but um, no luck as yet. Um, we'll certainly corner them at Winton in a couple of weeks' time. So, uh, uh, interesting. You had a conversation with Brad Wischewson, who is the uh, engineer of... Oh, he's head of engineering, rather, at Tickford. Um, and you spoke to him at Phillip Island, is that correct? I did. I caught up with him at Phillip Island. We talked about the uh, the restructure at um, at Tickford Racing, which now sees, of course, uh, Tooley. Chris O'Toole as the general manager of Tickford and that meant there was a whole engineering regime change that took place after what was very much a disappointing 2018 for the team. So we spoke to Brad about that. We spoke to Brad about at that stage having to put some lead on the roof and uh, uh, and talked about his career which, you know, uh, surprise, surprise, started at Gary Rogers Motorsport like so many people in Australian motorsport and then headed up north and back down to Melbourne once again. So it was an interesting chat. After the break, we'll uh, come back uh, with Brad with Chelson. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, Through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to do after, um, take the win off him. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Rapsdale family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. I'm joined here with Brad Wischusen, who is... I can't remember the new title. Are you head of engineering now for Tickford uh, Racing? Engineering manager. You've come up through the ranks. Where did your motor racing journey start? It started way back in 2007 at uh, Gary Rogers. So I uh, started there as a data and design engineer um, with that squad for, for the first year before moving on to Paul Morris's um, for a three-year stint up in Queensland. Yeah. Before that, were you racing carts or where did that first initial interest in becoming... A motor racing driver. Oh, a motor racing engineer, I should say. Yep. Um, no, I never, never had the opportunity to race karts. Um, yeah, my family couldn't really afford to uh, spend money on karting for me. So uh, I had an interest from a very young age, I guess, just watching Formula One and, and supercars on TV. And um, yeah, dad was a, a motor mechanic, so he was always kind of around cars and, and um, tinkering with them. So I uh, decided to go the, the route of um, yeah, engineering, basically, it was... Um, yeah, out of uni, went out of high school, went uh, into RMIT University to do a uh, mechanical engineering course um, for for four years, and, and got involved in the Formula SAE program there. Um, yeah, where I probably did two or three different um, competitions with that, and then yeah, basically straight out of that, got into um, into supercars. Imagine hearing all the uh, stories of Ron Taranak, who's one of the patrons of it, would be fairly inspiring. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you get you've um, yeah uh, quite a few. Um, yeah, I guess experienced people in that, you know, that are 
at judging in those kind of categories. So, um, yeah, they have obviously a wealth of experience that um, you get challenged on when you're, you know, such a young engineer trying to, to make your way through. So, yeah. And how'd it go, Gary? You sent the resume out to every supercar team and he was the one that came back to you? Uh, he was. It was probably pretty late on my behalf in terms of applying for, for jobs in supercars. Um, it was probably one of the only ones left in terms of... Um, yeah, wanting data engineers, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I that I got the opportunity with Gary. He's, you know, set me on my path to where I am now. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a perfect team for me to start to start where I did. Gary and Paul, whilst they're different people, they have some similar traits in their behaviour. They're not uh, the type that sort of go with the flow, are they? So, how different was Paul's race team to Gary's? Um, yeah, I guess they're they're both. A little bit different to the standard, uh, you know, team boss or whatever, but similar in a lot of respects. Um, but uh, yeah, they just—they basically just—they want you to to really, you know, earn your keep, and um, you know, you're not only just um, you know working behind a computer. You're kind of a bit more hands-on as well um, at, at those kind of teams. So um, yeah, I think you know both of those guys have really kind of helped me out, getting to me where I am today. So. And then was that when you moved across to Stone Brothers? Um, yeah, so I spent three years with Paul. Um, and, um, yeah, after the, I think it was about 2010 season, um, I took a little bit of a break, took about six months to try and um, make my way overseas um, and try and, uh, you know, crack into the European uh, circuit. But, um, yeah, with the GFC hitting at that kind of time, it was it made it very difficult, so... I spent about six months um, in the UK, and uh, yeah, just did a little, uh, a few little jobs, you know, in, in Formula Three and stuff like that. But nothing that was really able to pay. So yeah, I found my way back in Australia with um, Stone Brothers um, towards the end of the 2011 season, and um, yeah, and basically um, yeah, met up with Lee uh, Holdsworth again for the 2012 season when he joined um, Stone Brothers. So. You know, obviously had a relationship with him prior, working with him at Gary's uh, in 2007, so it was good to kind of, uh, yeah, to meet up with him again. And, and yeah, we we spent uh, three years at Stone Brothers, which obviously turned into Erebus um, at the time as well. Now, that became quite an interesting engineering challenge, and mm. I don't think people quite appreciate what you all were able to achieve with the Mercedes car, because it might not have got the trophies, mm. Um, of that era, but it was a huge achievement to be able to get that car out. Yeah, it was, it was a massive achievement. It was probably the, the most intense uh, program I've been part of, um, you know, in the, however long I've been doing this, 13 years or whatever, but um, it was just such a short turnaround from, you know, when it got announced that we were going to be, you know, working with HWA and introducing the Mercedes uh, into the category. I think it was about three months or something that we just blank sheet of paper, Car of the Future and everything as well coming in. It was it was very, very intense. I think it was you know, three months straight at work pretty much, doing 16-hour days, if not longer. So, um, I mean, it was, yeah, it was disappointing we didn't get the results because, you know, everyone was, was really pumped with the partnership we had with HWA at the time. Um, but, yeah, you know, there was a couple of elements with the car that just, just weren't up to scratch. Um so it made it quite difficult, especially those first six months, 12 months, just to get the thing up to speed. It was um, yeah, quite difficult. I've heard stories about, you know, particularly the engine, yeah. where the, the Germans just didn't appreciate the, the amount of horsepower that you guys here are able to extract out of a pushrod V8. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's no secret. It was probably 
around the engine that, that we really struggled with for the first, you know, probably up until they finished with it, really, to be honest. Um, especially the first six months, just to try and um, not only the power, it was more the, the power delivery as well with um, the way the manifold was um, and that particular engine just made it very difficult to get to, you know, to get to full power. So, um, yeah, just really lacked that kind of low-down torque. So. Were you working on any particular components on the car or were you just right across the whole thing? Uh, it was mainly the vehicle dynamics side of it. So, yeah, I was a race engineer very involved in that side. Um, also did a lot of the design work, I guess, for the, the suspension because we changed it all from... When we were at Stone Brothers to when we switched over to Erebus, we changed, you know, to the uh, different front end. Um, so, yeah, quite involved in, in most of that design. And, and then, yeah, basically everyone kind of has their department, so the engine guys look after that. And, I look, you know, me and uh, Wes at the time were looking after the su- suspension side of things. So, yeah. You then come back home to Victoria. Uh, change of climate and a big change of scenery. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I'd spent, you know, on and off about six or seven years in Queensland. And, um, yeah, the opportunity came up to to come back to Melbourne, which I'd always wanted to do. Um, yeah, my family's down here and friends and everything. So, um, yeah, an opportunity kind of came up um, at FPR slash ProDrive as it got changed to in 2015. So, um, yeah, just... Uh, a good opportunity for me and you know I got to work with Dave Reynolds when the Defjex came in and had quite a successful year you know we got close to competing for the the championship right up until the second last round um and it was just a big opener I guess coming to the biggest team I've ever worked at you know running four cars and probably the most professional team that I've been a part of so um I guess yeah just having that structure and support in place really um yeah, made things or made life a lot easier as a race engineer. You can really concentrate on just purely that race engineering side. Is systems the critical thing for engineering and for being able to do repeatability of performance? Uh, how do you mean systems? Having the right system in place so that it doesn't matter uh, what track, what day, you go through the same routine, you go through the same preparation um, for every component before it goes, you know, onto the car and then onto the racetrack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's quite important um, to have that. And, you know, the way uh, TickVid is set up, it's, um, it's, it's very structured to have that relationship with Ford in the past. And I think that's come through with the way the team's set up as well. Um, it can be a detriment sometimes in terms of, you know, getting parts in the car as quick as you want. Um, but, you know, we've been working with that process in the last few years and, and you know, we'll be able to do a lot more development to get the, the parts in the car quicker um, as we need to, to kind of keep up with the competition. So um, in terms of every, you know, day-to-day race engineering, you know, you're always running through your program um, with each other and, and you know, with four cars trying to work together. Um, and, but, you know, there's some days you really have to think on your feet if you're really off, off the mark. And, you know, we try to do that as best as we can as a group here at Tickford. So. Mm. So you work with Dave, who's a very different person out of the car than in, I would imagine. Um, yeah, he's, he's quite interesting. Um, you know, obviously, he's, everyone knows his character, but um, he's uh, you know a very driven driver as well. You know, behind the facade, you see Tom sometimes he's you know he's, he's very dedicated to what he's doing, and you know the results he's getting now um, at Erebus is is you know a testament to him and to that team. They've done an excellent job. So. Um, yeah, I've, I've worked with a lot of drivers over the years and they all stand out in different ways. But, yeah, um, he's one of the funner ones to work with. But, um, yeah, still gets the job done when he needs to. 
Then did you go straight to Cam Waters from Dave or did you have someone else in between? Um, no, so basically end of 2015 when Dave left, um, I spent a year with Chaz uh, in 2016 um, with Super Cheap coming on board. So um, yeah, I spent 12 months with him. Uh, that time Adam had gone to uh, to Penske for that 12 months. So um, yeah, we, we had a, a, you know, reasonably successful year in terms of our one lap speed we couldn't seem to extract the race pace that we needed to to really fight for the championship um which was a shame i mean obviously Chaz was quite quick in the first uh you know 2015 season up until he injured himself um so that was uh yeah i guess unfortunately we couldn't quite keep up with the holdens that year so um yeah and then beyond 2016 uh, i moved on to, to cam's car um yeah and a different challenge when you have a younger driver to the guys that had had a lot of experience that you'd been working with previously. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, uh, Cam had done one full year with us, I think, in 2016. Um, and, yeah, we basically were just to, to try and um, change things up a bit to try and extract a bit more speed out of him. Uh, we moved our engineering department around. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a different ball game when you're working with a younger driver. You, there's a lot more you know, coaching as well as trying to do the vehicle dynamic side of things as well. So uh, it's something, you know, you have to um, rely on your experience a little bit as well, you know, to, to try and understand what you've learned from the older drivers to apply to the younger ones. But you do have to treat them all a little bit differently. Now in 2019, yep. your new role again, looking after or overseeing the entire program of engineering. How's that sitting with you? And how's, I imagine this becomes a people management exercise as much as it's a pure engineering um role yeah exactly yeah it's um it's the first time i guess i've really moved into a management position and um yeah something i've always wanted to do um but i guess with the the way we were kind of moving at the end of last year it was it was an opportunity to do that rather sooner rather than than later so um yeah i guess in my role now is to um yeah just to manage the the race engineering department and the engineering department as a whole when we're at the racetrack um so, yeah, we're just trying to basically, yeah, just drive all four cars in the same direction and, and work, you know, as a team um, a lot more to uh, extract the speed more efficiently um, than maybe what we have in the past. Um, so, yeah, I guess my my position now is to kind of work across all four with all four race engineers and, and um, and yeah, so far this year I think it's been, been working pretty well. Well, you've got a new toy, haven't you, the Mustang? Yeah. How are you finding that? Because... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but unlike Penske, who built the, their cars completely from the ground up, you guys have adapted what you were running last year to, to fit in inside the the Mustang shell. Yeah, we we converted our Falcons uh, into Mustangs, um, which you know for us really, um, and the resource we had and the time frame we had was was the best best option really. So um, I don't think there's any any downside to doing that. Um, if anything, it's probably given us a bit more ability to um, work on other areas as well. Um, so yeah, I mean we're we're not at the level of Penske just yet in terms of our right speed, but we've definitely closed the gap from last year. Um, so that's you know our target at the moment is just to try and keep closing the gap to them because they're obviously you know the fastest cars out there. How has the relationship now that Ford Performance is back on board with helping with engineering and the Mustang? How does that provide extra support to you? Um, yeah, I guess collectively it makes. Um, yeah, the two teams work closer together. We're not, you know, we obviously don't uh, trade too many secrets or anything, but the overall package, um, you know, there's, there's um, 
you know, some sharing going on there that we can work off each other. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a much stronger position for us to be in this year than, than what we have been in the past. How do you feel when you build, you build your toy and then all the, the external noise starts, oh, this is unfair, this is, mm. you know, everything you dealt with the ZB last year, you're hearing coming now to your car yeah. as, a, as a collective, the Mustang. How do you feel when someone says to you, all right, bolt 30 kilos, 28 or whatever it is, up onto the roof? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit frustrating. I guess the the rules kind of uh, change a little bit every year, um, in a sense. And you know, it's um, you know they've had to bolt lead to the roof of our cars. Um, you know, that's fine. We'll just take it and push on. But um, yeah, I think it it's a little bit frustrating sometimes because it does take away from the work that we do here. You know, Dickford for performance and I'm sure the Penske guys as well. But um, it just takes away, away a little bit of the hard work we, we have done to get where we are. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it is what it is. So Normally teams are in the process of building chassis and, and you know, building backup equipment. Yeah. How do the decisions that have been made with the COG and then potential other decisions that could be plucked out of the sky for aero, say, going to affect how you go about building your next two or three chassis? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still pretty fresh um, since we've had to, to do the COG thing and, um, you know, there's always talk of aero or whatever, but um, and, until we really get some solid rules, then it's really hard to, to, to really plan too far into the future. Um, you know, we're looking to have a new chassis come on board for Chaz, um, you know, middle of this year. Um, we've got a couple of chassis already on the shop floor anyway that um, have been built. So, um, you know, they're all control chassis to an extent and whatever you bolt into them is, is you know, is up to the teams. So we just continue on um, as we were for the moment. So, yeah. Is the light at the end of the tunnel for how this structure is going? Do you think you're arriving at the, the destination on how the structure will work for the team long-term, or do you think it's just always going to be a constant evolution of how engineering is going to develop at Tickford? Um, yeah, I mean, we've evolved a little bit in the last um, yeah, 12 months at least, uh, where we, you know, we realise we need to have um, engineering back at the workshop um, as well as you know, have, have some leadership, I guess, at the track. So uh, the, this position was basically created... Um, you know, for me to step into while we still have Nathaniel Osborne back at the at the, at the workshop as a chief engineer, um, kind of running everything day to day, you know, to keep the the development coming um, as we're away racing. So, um, you know, we'll probably just assess how this goes in the first six months, twelve months, and see what we need from there, whether there's any more support or not. But um, uh, yeah, I think so far it's been quite quite successful. Finally, is supercars getting to the stage where we're going to start seeing? an engineering team back at base radioing in information to the guys on the ground at the track. Is supercars moving towards that, do you feel? Um, potentially in the long term. Uh, you know, I know Formula One probably do that a little bit to an extent, but um, their teams are probably 10 times bigger than ours. So, um, you know, it always comes back to, to budget constraints and whatnot. And... Um, in the short term, I'd say no, potentially you'd five years down the track, maybe that potentially could be the way it goes. Yeah. Brad, pleasure to catch up with you here today and we look forward to seeing how the Tickford Racing Mustangs pursue yeah. 2019. No worries. Thanks, mate. Cheers. 
After the break on Inside Supercars, we find out why air conditioning is not in supercars with Mark Dotton and Tim Edwards. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think it's a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as the supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and we don't like it the first time that we end up with a win there at Freeway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Welcome Insiders Supercars, it's Tony Whitlock here at Albert Park. Mark Dutton, we're halfway through the day, you've got yep. another race to come. Got it's some noise in the background. Noise in the background, <laughs> cars, can't fake them. Yep. Um, I'm wanting specifically just follow up on Adelaide. We obviously got through the weekend. We only had the one uh, aircon pulling suit failure. Yep. A lot of discussion about you know should the cars have air conditioning in them. Now uh, you know you've been involved uh, with uh, GG cars where they have air conditioning the Mercedes. Yep. Um, and and the Ferrari as well. Yeah. Yeah, and the yep. Ferrari. Um, can you tell us something? You did some work evaluating us how you'd go about it. What what are the goals of that? Yeah, so there's a few different methods um, that you could look at. The, the best type of cooling, um, well, once again, it depends how you look at it. So we currently have dry ice. So let's look at what we've got. So dry ice, the good thing with dry ice is when you install the dry ice in the car, you're installing the energy. You're not, you don't have to produce the energy. So the energy doesn't have to come from the motor. It doesn't have to come from battery and motor, etc. You, the, the energy stored in the dry ice. So it's the changing temperature of the dry ice that you yeah. use. Yeah. So the, the energy to create the dry ice is created elsewhere. You buy it, you put it in, you carry the weight, the weight disappears because it goes to a gas. So that's why that system's attractive because you don't need to draw energy, power from, from any system in the car. So that's that's why that's that's a good system and that's that's how you've got there before. The biggest differences with, with our cars, uh, our supercars, to GT cars, is the size of the cockpit. We've got much larger cockpits, so to cool the whole cockpit... It'd be almost double the size, wouldn't it? That's right. Yeah, definitely. Some of it, probably even more. Yes. Um, when, you, when you look in some of those cars, the cockpits are super tight. Yeah, the, the firewall's right behind the driver's back, etc. Um, so there, there'd be a lot more uh, power needed... To, to cool the cockpit of a supercar compared to to a, to a GT car. Now that doesn't mean you have to use an air conditioning system to cool the cockpit. You can use the air conditioning system to cool the vest the drivers wear. So instead of having a cool box as we currently do fueled by dry ice, you could have an air conditioning system um, and there's, there's different systems out there, Peltor cooling etc. The most efficient cooling system is the refrigeration cycle. Um, that does require outside energy, so it requires two, two energy sources. One, uh, the compressor, so that's coming from your motor. Uh, whether, whether it's driven by the motor or whether it's driven by electricity com- uh, created by the engine, it's uh, your power source, you're creating that. It also relies on the ambient conditions. So the reason your, your fridge works uh, is because uh, it, it requires the environment to, to take some of the energy away. What that means is the refrigeration cycle can have uh, coefficient of performance greater 
they have to call it that instead of efficiency because if you look at how much energy you put in when you plug your fridge into the wall, if you put in one kilowatt of electricity, it'll produce three to four kilowatts of cooling. So you go, well, cool, I've I've created a perpetual motion machine that creates more power than, than you put in. That's not true because the rest of that power comes from the ambient conditions, the environment. Um, what this equates to a race car is if you put an air conditioning system into a super hot race car, its coefficient of performance will drop down and it won't keep it, keep it, it cool. How you, how you avoid that? You need air to come in from the outside, not to cool the driver, but to actually cool the air conditioning system. As you can see, it's not a, an easy equation. But it still works, so there's different ways to do it. So the easiest way to make a one-size-fits-all is to make it electrical. So therefore, you don't have to um, make to different engines. You just put in a box that draws 6, 12, 18, 24 amps, whatever it might be. Would you have to add extra batteries into the, to run it? Or... No, you shouldn't need the extra batteries. What you need is possibly a bigger alternator. So you might need a bigger, bigger Which amperage. Might draw alternator. another one or two kilowatts, maybe. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And but generally, the alternator is quite good. The efficiencies are there, and they also um, they 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 draw more power when they need it. Um, so uh, that is the simplest system to do. Which there are systems out there that you can buy. Most of the ones I've seen that are small enough, um, and I don't necessarily have first-hand experience, but when you read the data sheets, etc., they're quite expensive, so it's hard to just get them in for a test run. Um, they, they don't have the required power to do the complete job. Ideally, we want one that will cool the driver's cool suit and then also cool their helmet air, which, which we all filter the carbon monoxide out of. So that's what our cool box does. So we'd like a system that replaces that. The, the easier way to do it um, in some say is you have a compressor like your road car that's driven from the engine, driven from the transaxle. Um, that's one that could be explored. We all have a common transaxle. So why not drive it from that? So there are quite a few different variants you can look at. Um, yeah, very long answer there. I don't know if I've answered any of your questions. Okay, well, let's just take the first point you raised, that is the cabin size. I'm looking here at the back of your ZB, where you have built an artificial rear firewall. Yeah. Sorry to use the word, but that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that could be further forward, isn't it? There's nothing to stop you making it behind the seat. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Um, which would just lessen the load you might Oh, massively. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it definitely would. Um, as well as, you know, putting as much effort into insulation uh, of the cockpit as well so that you're stopping as much heat getting in because yeah. it's a race car. That, that's one of the things, of because heat. of front engine, say compared to the DTM in particular, yeah. DTM and also uh, many GTs where rear engine, mid-engine, whatever, exactly. it's behind you. Yeah. Mercedes, of course, not, it's in front. Yeah. But you've always got that problem because of the exhaust. You've yes. always got the heat problem yeah. coming through the floor. Yeah. I mean, you already put that gold. You can always do more with insulation. Um, it's 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 um, it's just things that need research and, and effort put into. Um, and sometimes, you know, you need to look at the rules and go: Do you homologate something? Do you let teams do it all themselves? Um, I think right now we're not we're not in a bad way. You know, right now, if if Adelaide, we all had air conditioning systems. Guaranteed, one of them would have failed. Yeah. 
So if, if only one cool suit with the current systems failed, we're, we're in a pretty good way. And I believe it failed because it, it froze up. People were trying to be a bit, bit too cool. Um, which, once again, to, to prevent that, there's an easier fix. Allow us to run a higher percentage of glycol and, uh, and it's less likely to, to freeze. So you, so you don't actually have to throw the, ba- the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's, there's different ways to look at improving on a very good system already while developing the next step. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, the time you've been in the series from when you started, I don't remember the exact year, yeah. um, it has come a dramatic way. I mean, because you would have done those Adelaides at first and, you know, there were fears for drivers. Not their lives, but certainly their health. Oh, definitely. Back and, in the day. So, the, so it's come a long, long way. Yeah. Com- com- completely different, yeah. Um, Jamie was one of the first ones pushing to, to run a cool suit. Back, back when he was trying to you know, convince the team to let him to run one, it was, it was old school. You no, no one runs a cool suit, just harden up. Um, which which uh, was old school, but was incorrect, because if you look back at times and things like that, there, there was more inconsistency in lap time because fatigue play, played a bigger role. So it was actually a performance advantage back then to run a cool suit when others weren't, even though you were carrying the weight because, you know, as long as you had a good car and a good driver, their fatigue levels were lower and they would put in a, a better performance. Yeah, there's a performance graph where temperature and driver efficiency, and I, I saw it years ago, and it's quite dramatic. I remember talking to Jim Stone about it, yeah. trying to get him to sort of think of the idea of you could actually make sure your driver doesn't performance drop-off yes. as the temperature goes, because there is that direct correlation. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so, you know, in the current rules, then you're comfortable with what it is now. I mean, obviously, we don't have many days like we had in Adelaide on the Friday and Saturday. No, that's, you spoke before that I've been in this game for a little while, I have. Uh, don't make me feel old. But uh, that's that's the, the oldest, uh, sorry, the hottest uh, race I've been to the whole time in supercars. One of the men in this paddock here who's done quite a bit is Phil Young yep. who's out walking shorts and he's done 20 odd years in F1 he'd never seen anything like that no exactly and yeah. okay Formula 1 drivers don't have the same they have the stretches yeah the side loads but not the, not the heat um, so yeah so and, you know occasionally maybe up in Darwin or uh, Townsville you might get some hot Dar- days Darwin's 32 every year yeah. every year we go with consistent 32 uh, which is hot but it's, it's nowhere near the, the 40, 40 plus that, that we had in Adelaide. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you very much for giving us an explanation on the air conditioning in supercars. That's Mark Dutton of Triple Eight. Thanks for your time. Thank Cheers. You. Welcome to Inside Supercars. I'm here with Tim Edwards. Qualifying for Formula One race of the year is starting, first one. But we're wanting to talk about air conditioning in supercars. Tim has a very similar approach to this, and that is... It won't work in a supercar. Unfortunately, the volume of air in the side of the cabin, the fact that it's 800 degree exhaust temperature within 20 millimetre proximity of the floor of the car, it's just... Yeah, the cabins, the cars aren't built for that. You'd have to take a very different approach to the to way the cars are constructed for an air conditioner to work in this environment. If O&H&S got involved in the category, they'd probably close down a meeting like Adelaide when it's on 40 I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought so because the, the fact is the driver's got a cool suit on that's at 8 degrees. Yep. So 
he's probably a damn sight more comfortable than we were standing in the garage at 42 degrees. So, you know, that, that's why the, the, the category mandate filtered air to the drivers, to make sure there's no fumes. And that's why they also mandate that you have to have an operational cool suit in the car. And obviously we didn't, and we, had to, we paid the price and had to pit the car and rectify that in Adelaide. So I think the category's taken every, exa- every step that it needs to to make sure that it is a safe working environment. There's a dramatic difference between you when you started in the category um, and in Adelaide, for instance, at the start of the year, when there were a number of instances where drivers fell out of their cars when they pulled up. Yeah, absolutely, and that, and that's and that's a result of the fact that we have taken on board those issues and over the the, the last decade improved the the cabin environment for the drivers to make sure that they have got fresh air to breathe and that they have got the cool suit on their body to keep their core temperature down you know it, you know obviously there's a duty of care but there's also from a performance aspect you know anybody who thinks that an elite athlete is going to be able to operate in a uh, you know in a 40 50 degree cabin temperature at the best of their ability there's no chance so you know it's twofold we've got to make sure the driver is also able to drive at 100 percent for the duration of the race as much as we need to make sure that it's safe for him to do that Thank you very much, Tim, for your expert opinion on the end of Michigan Supercars. No problem. After break, our final thoughts for this week's Inside Supercars. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every, every year I see Jackie's Cooper Grand Prix and I just remind myself of, of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Jack Brabham certainly left his mark, not only on Australian motorsport, but motorsport all around the world. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock, Craig Gravel in our final thoughts for this week's Inside Supercars. One thing we should make mention of is next week in the uh, weekend prior to Sydney Motorsport Park's debut in the Shannon Series, or Shannon's Nationals, is the TCR debut meeting. And uh, we're going to have a chat to uh, Bruin Beasley, who's running the GRM cars, the two Alphas and the two Renaults. Um, so that's going to be interesting to uh, talk with him. Um, your final thought, Craig, on uh, post Barbagello? My final thought is certainly something that uh, the CEO of Supercars is wrestling with along with the events team, and that is how many night races is the right balance for Supercars? I think with the success of Perth and the drivers saying that this track was the sort of length of track that works really well, um, I, I personally think Queensland Raceway... Uh, if the date changes would be a great place because the problem with Queensland Raceway is as soon as the sun goes down, the temperature plummets as well. And whilst it's a beautiful place to go up to in winter and have a day at the track, I don't know that many people would want to be out there in the middle of the night in August. Yeah, it's a very, very good thought. Um, it certainly uh, adds something to it. My, my first thought is, uh, final thought rather, is around uh, that night racing, uh, the balance between day and night. Um, it certainly seems likely that there'll be more in future. Certainly Sydney Motorsport Park will be one added. Um, but how many there should be? Well, you know, they're not going to be on any of the street circuits. They're not going to be doing the light night racing in places like Townsville or Newcastle and those sort of tracks because, you know, this, you, you limit your audience 
when you're going to the night. Obviously, there's a problem for kids and all those sort of things. So I, I think the balance will be found, and I think it's likely that there'll be maybe up to six or eight races out of the 36 that could be night races, so two or three events uh, per year. Did uh, you think the two weekend. races worked better than the single race, though, Tony? I preferred the single race myself. I'm not sure. I think you'd have to be a participant at the track to uh, to be the one who lines up for that. Certainly, uh, night pit stops work well. You know, the brakes looks you know amazing and things like that. Um, you know, I mean, we're now firmly locked into. Uh, this longer race uh, format where uh, two pit stops are the usual in our races. Uh, I hope that's the pattern that they continue in the future. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the one race format is the way to go and uh, reduce it down to a Friday practice Saturday race rather than the Thursday, Friday, Saturday that we saw over in Perth. That would be my, that would be my preference. Um, obviously, the drivers want as many opportunities in the car as they can get so uh, it depends how you're looking at it but we'll, we'll certainly be having a discussion about cost cutting in the next few weeks and uh, that one has always been the one they've talked about the one day race meeting the two day race meeting as opposed to the the three and four day race meetings and I think the night races are better suited to a longer race with a shorter weekend of racing. Well, I'll be looking forward to getting some more points of view. Uh, in fact, we might actually go looking to get a few names from the past. Uh, Craig and I have talked about uh, getting people such as uh, Jeff Harris, maybe, or uh, David Hassel. Certainly getting some points of view about people who've been around motor racing for 30-plus years. So that's it from Inside Supercars this week. They're all from me, and... Good night from him. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.